Welcome to the Melungeon Voices Podcast, presented by the Melungeon Heritage Association. My name is Liz Malone. I'm the podcast producer. And joining me, as always, for the launch of the highly anticipated season four, our triumphant return to podcasting. I'm here with Heather Andalina, president of the MHA. Heather, welcome to season four. I know. I can't believe it, Liz. We're on season four now. I know. So we decided collectively that the trick to having another season is that we have to mentally manifest it at the end of each season, right? We yes. We saying, like, we're going to manifest a season four, right? Exactly. Okay. So we don't even have to think about manifesting a new season because we're here. We got a brand new season. We have another phenomenal lineup of guests that you have cultivated and bravo as always bringing together such a a diverse collection of interesting perspectives and before we kick off with our first interview for the season uh we always like to have you start off and welcome everybody and give us like i guess let's call it the state of the mha (laughs) <laughs> I like that. Yeah, the state of the MHA. That's you see, we're all about firsts. Yes. So, so I'm going to turn the microphone over to you, Heather, and um, you take it away from here. All right. Thank you, Liz. Welcome back to the fourth season of the Melungeon Voices podcast. I am truly honored to serve as the MHA's board president and thrilled to continue this journey of insightful conversations with you. First, I want to mention the success of this year's MHA's annual union conference back in June, and to give a special thanks to the Lair House in Mount Vernon for hosting our conference and the Limestone Grill and Bar for catering the author event. They were the perfect match for us, and we appreciate the wonderful hospitality and service provided. Now, Onto the fourth season of the podcast. Once again, I'm teaming up with our hardworking producer, Liz Malone, and bringing you all another amazing lineup. In this season, we'll delve into more Melungeon and Appalachian ancestry, history, and diversity while bringing you engaging discussions with researchers, thought leaders, and everyday individuals who have fascinating stories to share. Our goal is to create a platform where an array of different people and perspectives can come together to share their stories and knowledge on not just Melungeon ancestry, but also mixed heritage and Appalachian culture to all of you. We hope that the Melungeon Voices podcast enriches your day and sparks your curiosity and ideas. We're dedicated to delivering thought-provoking content that entertains, informs, and leaves you with a fresh perspective. Don't forget to subscribe to the Melungeon Voices podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And we can't do this without you, our valuable members. If you're not already a member of the MHA, please visit our website today at www.melungeon.org and click the Join Now button at the top of this page. Memberships, grants, and generous donations from people just like you help to keep our organization running, 
and directly fund special programming such as this. On behalf of the entire MHA Board of Directors, we thank you for joining us, and we can't wait to connect with you. Well, as always, Heather, what a beautiful address. I think that all of the members are very grateful for your wonderful tenure as the board president. If you are not a member, do what Heather said, join up. Uh, we love and appreciate your support, and um, it's going to be another great season. Oh, it is. And I am going to second that, uh, Madam President. And uh, so let's talk about what we're doing this week. We have uh, an exceptional guest. We have all exceptional guests. But for today, we're going to say another exceptional guest for episode one to kick off this new season. Tell us, Heather, who will you be speaking with this week and what will you be talking about? This week, we are speaking with Kiran Singh Sarah. Kiran is a speaker folklorist, storyteller, peace builder, and past president of the International Storytelling Center and producer of the world-renowned National Storytelling Festival. Prior to his appointment at the ISC, he helped establish several award-winning arts, cultural, and human rights programs in numerous countries. Kieran is regularly asked to provide keynote lectures, workshops, and training seminars for such entities as the Smithsonian Institution, U.S. State Department, Department of Defense, Library of Congress, the United Nations, and many others, and has worked in and in collaboration with projects in Colombia, Brazil, Palestine, Israel, South Sudan, and Uganda. Kieran firmly believes storytelling not only enriches lives, but also holds the key to building a better world. In this season's debut episode, we explore the significance of storytelling in Appalachia and Melungeon communities, as well as the importance of telling and sharing our own experiences and stories. Well, thank you so much, Heather. Let's take a listen. Hi, Kieran. It's such a pleasure having you on our podcast today. It's so good to be here, Heather. Wonderful to be here. I like to start off my interviews with the question of when was the first time you learned of the Melungeon people or heard the term Melungeon? Oh, wow. You know, I'm new to Appalachia to some degree. And so I've been here over 10 years. I think I was probably lived here in another life because it's definitely home. It wasn't really, I mean, I heard the term I think over the years, and I think particularly in the last few years, uh, when I was president of the Storytelling Center, when we did a program called Freedom Stories, and when we um, started to work with Dr. Alistine Turley, who's uh, you know a specialist historian, and you know we started to talk about themes and topics that we could really sort of explore, which was primarily focused on Black history, like the black storytelling experiences of Appalachia, that's when I started to hear Melungeon. And I was like, what is Melungeon? And then, then I started to, to have different conversations. And my wife, my wife grew up in Lee County, uh, Virginia, and has an experience of over 200 years. And she started talking a little bit about how she, you know, Melungeon was, it was very maybe common, I think, or there was experiences of like people she went to school with that identified as Melungeon. 
but I was still, yeah, still kind of like learning. I didn't quite know until we started to do this program at Storytelling Center. And obviously then I got to meet with the Melungeon Society that came and we had this beautiful conversation and then learn more. And I got to learn more and realize realize a lot that, you know, there's this diaspora that's all across the the nation. It's not just located to one place and it's a lot more complex. So I was really, really fascinated and also interested in so yeah, I say it was more in the last few years, but I also realized that there's a lot of interest. When I say Melungeon, or I hear, you know, I talk to someone about it, then people's eyes light up. There's some, there seems to be like a curiosity and interest. People are sort of here sort of connected. And I also probably say, you know, through my friend Wayne Winkler, uh, that I've got to know and who also identifies as Melungeon and, and I know he's done some research and work in that area. Yes, and we had Wayne on the first season of the Melungeon Voices podcast, actually. Well, now, he's got the best voice. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? He has a voice for radio, for sure. Oh, definitely. <laughs> now, Kieran, would you tell us more about your own personal unique ancestry? Sure, yeah. In some ways, people say it's complex. When I start, they can't kind of make sense of like, what? You know, India, Africa, England, Scotland. United States now, but it's not that. It's I see it as almost like a thread because my origins come from two villages in northern India, from rural villages. But my people have lived in different parts of the world. For example, you know, for maybe probably hundreds of years, they lived in the rural parts of northern India. That's where. They, but you know, when my grandparents left India around the 40s to go to East Africa. And they were part of the freedom movement, the freedom fighter movement for for against British rule and occupation. And that after independence, they went to East Africa to build the railroads. And, you know, not everybody left at first. My grandfather's went. It was um, kind of indentured labor, but it was very sort of a little bit exploitative because the British needed to build an expansion to the British Empire, but they needed skilled laborers. So I think the Europeans were kind of like, didn't want to work out in the heat. So they brought the Indians over and, uh, and you know, they had to build the railroads through the Kenyan desert to, to, to the source of the Nile. And partly what that was, was part of a war effort because it was during the war, the Great War, and whoever controlled the Suez Canal and had the source of the River Nile would have control between east and west. So I didn't realize that till much later. But my parents sort of my parents, my mother was born in Kenya, in Mombasa. My father was born in India. He was five years old when he moved to Uganda to be with his father and family. And then my brother was born in Uganda. And then my family grew up in Uganda. And then in 1972, under the dictatorship of Idi Amin, my family had to flee. Um, they were given three months, but then actually a second announcement came that my parents were given 48 hours to leave the country or be executed. And so they had to flee. They were robbed on the route to the airport by the army, you know, left very vulnerable. And they came to Britain in October the 26th, 1972, um, and landed at Stansted Airport. I know that because I've interviewed my father about it. And I remember him talking at the time that, you know, there was a lot of far-right neo-Nazi kind of movement, anti-immigrant movements, and they stormed the airports. And so the plane had to divert. 
he always talked about being a very sunny day. Everyone said it would be cold in England. So that's what he expected. But he landed in Britain and it was a beautiful sunny day in October. And so I, they moved to a small town called Eastbourne on the south coast of England, 50 miles south of London as the crow flies and 30 kilometers from France. So you could see France on a clear day. And that's where I was born four years later. So I grew up in England of Indian, East African background, heritage, language, food. It's all mixed together. And then spent most of my life in England, but then spent some time in Spain, in Madrid, sometimes in, in Ireland, lived different parts of London, the north of England. And I moved to Scotland in 2001, spent 10 years there before moving to the United States, as you can tell by my North Carolina accent. <laughs> So, Karen, circling back, please share what brought you to Appalachia. I would say it was this job initially. And when I graduated from UNC, I decided I wanted to. And I was I was there on a World Peace Fellowship, um, two years, fully funded fellowship. It was a brilliant fellowship and in, in designing peace building and storytelling programs because of the work I was doing previously in sort of conflict resolution in Northern Ireland and Scotland. But when I graduated, I realized I'd only really sort of touched the surface and in this really big country. And I decided I wanted to stay. I didn't want to go back to the UK, not because it's cold. I actually quite like the cold. It was really because it's a smaller country. And there's so much more to explore. And I really sort of started to see the potential of what I initially, I would say, I know that America is a United States is an incredible powerhouse in the world but what i kind of wanted to do was also influence foreign policy as an anti-war activist and but now i've become an american so it wasn't about sort of trying to change people it's like i am an american now when i graduated i was like looking for work because to stay in the country you need to work and you need to have a visa and i started to apply telling people what i was doing and i get up and i basically got offered a job to run the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Never heard of Jonesboro before that. Never heard of the National Storytelling Festival. Never heard of that. I applied. They invited me for an interview. And I thought, well, let me give this a go. Could I handle this? Could I live in a small place? Could I live in a, this place I don't know? And I came here, fell in love with the place, and I and I was offered the position. And I just packed up my Subaru with a few possessions that I had and moved here. and. Uh, that's what really brought me to Appalachia. I feel there's probably more now when I'm in reflection because I remember what somebody saying to me, uh, when you go to the mountains, listen to the magic of the mountains. I didn't know what she meant back then, but now I feel I've begun to understand that. It's a much more deeper place than from the outside. Before I left Scotland, I uh, was talking to my uh, my friend and she's a folk singer. And I, she goes, where are you going? I said, I'm going to North Carolina. She goes, where's that? And I'm not too sure. Let's look on the map. And I didn't know where, even know where North Carolina was to be <laughs> a silly Brit. But uh, and she goes, that's kind of near Appalachia. And goes, oh, maybe I'll end up in Appalachia on the front porch wearing dungarees and playing the banjo. Just jokingly, because that's what I knew to be you know, from the stereotype, from the Beverly Hillbillies program we watched as kids. That's what I knew. And I, that's all I understood. But then I'm not that far from it when I'm sort of advocating for storytelling on my front porch. I love my front porch. And here I am in Appalachia as an Appalachian now. 
Um, but I realized there is magic here. There's also depth. There's also complexity. There's also struggle. There's also resilience. There's pain, but there's also incredible beauty. And that's why I love being here. Yes to all of that. <laughs> <laughs> so you came and you got a job as the president of the International Storytelling Center. Mm -hmm. Karen, give us a little history about storytelling and its significance to humans throughout time. Wow. How much? How many podcast series have you, episodes you got? <laughs> <laughs> Should we make it Can a series? A yeah. <laughs> well, um, obviously, I ran the Storytelling Center for 10 years. I stepped down a couple of months ago. You know, so it's a decade, really. Now, I would say I've always had a love and a passion for storytelling, but I didn't know I'll end up running a storytelling center. So, you know, sometimes when you get that job, you start reflecting on your story and it starts to kind of, you see it through that lens. And I'd say, you know, I, I do a lot of thinking, you know, the job encourages you to do that. When you're in that world and you're engaged, you're working with storytellers, you're listening to stories, you know, what stories does is broaden your perspectives it, it excites the imagination you get to travel across not just places in the world but across time you know you get to travel from forty thousand year old civilizations to understanding places and people the history of storytelling will come differently for different people but the way i would see it that people often talk about storytelling beginning around the campfire it's what our ancestors did to share, to pass on knowledge. But I believe, and I've talked about this a lot, that it started before. Initially, it started in the mind, in the imagination. When our earliest ancestors looked up into the sky and began to use their imagination, when they saw the stars and began to wonder. We never stop wondering. We do that all the time. We think, we imagine, we, we explore. That's a human trait right? We're always doing that. We're, we do it every, when we scroll through our phones, we're searching for the truth, right? When we look at the news, we're searching for the human story. And I think that place of the imagination is the birthplace of storytelling. What has happened over, you know, from the development of the human species was that our particular human species would developed the ability to communicate through story, which then helped our humanity, our species, to kind of survive, not just survive, but communicate to challenge, you know, to beat other human species <laughs> and eventually kind of like develop that ability to communicate in a more complex way. And back then, you know, the storytelling as the oral tradition got told around that fire, it got told around by tradition bearers. You know, I would say it began in, in Africa and over time, you know, as 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 societies and people uh, migrated and and evolved and kind of went to different parts of the world, the traditions went with them. And you know, it's always been something that you know, until very very recently in human history, it's been an oral tradition passed from one generation to the next to the next. It's entertainment, but it's also knowledge. It's lessons. It's wisdom. It's a way to bind a community into a group, a group identity. It's an intangible aspect of identifying a people. We're all parts of multiple narratives. And we are still doing that as people. The United States is just a piece of rock, but a story that we infuse in that rock that makes it a nation. The same with a flag, 
the same of a place, the same of a region. Appalachia is just a piece of rock. And it's an imagined, being Appalachian is an imagined idea. You know, whether we're, and it's, a, you know, of course, ASC defines a place, but somebody may identify as Appalachian, but they live in another part of the nation or the world. You know, it's imagined space. So it's the same with story. It's a con continually flexing part of who we are and our identity. Some people might suggest that, you know, I think, therefore, I story. It's embedded in our DNA. It's uh, Barbara Meinerhoff, the anthropologist, Jewish anthropologist, suggests that we're not just homo sapiens, we're homo narrans. Narrative is who we are. And I would say that it's so core to our humanity that it's the thing, the one thing that we kind of want to leave and share when we when we die, to know our story has been heard, witnessed, and appreciated and valued. It's one of the kind of the core aspects of who we are as humans. That's so beautifully said. I mean, I completely agree. So why is it important for us to tell our own stories especially within our Melungeon and Appalachian communities. It's so that other people don't tell those stories for you, simply. Because when you think about the history of Appalachia, I how did I know about Appalachia? From a stereotypal uh, demonizing TV program that demonized a region and a people, right? The Beverly Hillbillies, you know what I mean? I mean, it was, it was a fun program, but, you know, to many aspects, it was playing on a stereotype. It was playing, it was demonizing. It was making fun of. Other people were telling that story. It's really important that people cultivate their ability to share their and to tell their own stories. And people are, but it's are they being heard? You know what I mean? So I think, and I think that goes for any group. There's also the complexities within that group. There's no one, just like there's no one single narrative for one person. Like I have multiple stories. I have millions. So do you. We all do. Just like in a, a group of, say, the Melungeons, there's going to be multiple, complex Melungeons that grew up in Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina, or South Carolina, or different parts. You know, their experience is going to be different. The history of the Melungeons is going to be different based on the, 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 the social, political climate of that time and what has shaped, you know, into the identity of today, how somebody might define themselves. And I think, you know, when people cultivate and learn how to, share their own story, then it's agency, it's power, it's an empowerment. It's saying, also saying that you love yourself. It's allowing yourself to say, I want to tell my own story. It's my story to tell. And I, I just think that's really important. I'm very hesitant on the idea of we only think about storytelling as personal narrative. I really think it's important to recognize the collective, the folk traditional, the, the folk stories the stories that bind us as a group but it's also where's our place within that group when i look at my heritage yeah i have a multiple complex sort of heritage from different countries and there's a story about what what is the indian or asian community in britain we don't have one single story we're com it's complex i was born in britain my parents were born in another country so there's a it was a chance for me to look at my identity for what was i inherited but also what have i what do I claim and what I'm emerging, what I wish to be. When I moved to Scotland, that was different because I also adopted a Scottish identity too. You know, when I moved to the United States, you know, so I think it's really important to, to explore that complexity and to celebrate it, to, to come together, to share and to be rekindled.
when there are gatherings, I imagine with the Melungeon Heritage gatherings that once a year, it's a storytelling event. We are coming back round metaphorically, figuratively round the fire, relearning who we are, where we come from, what are our lessons, what binds us, what do we celebrate. And these rituals are so important to our human uh, experience that you know we get to celebrate them and and remember and look at each other uh and and be in fellowship and community again and that makes us stronger as a people let's talk about some of the important work that the international story center does oh yeah i mean i i was there for 10 years so you know i'm not right there right now but you know um but i took over as president in 2013 there'd only ever been two of I mean, they've been the founder, Mr. Jimmy Neal Smith, that founded it in the organization, at least, in 1973. So I wasn't born. And he came up with the idea of creating a storytelling event. There wasn't a center back then. It was just an event. And that particular event happened in Jonesboro. But it was specifically back then, it was um, a kind of a initiative to save a dying mountain town part of a revitalization effort and you know 60 to 80 people came and then what but what jimmy neal did he's that he brought mountain man storyteller mr ray hicks from beach mountain north carolina that is both of scotch irish which most people know but he's also of cherokee heritage many people don't really talk about that side of it they very much talk about his scotch irish heritage but He's also part Cherokee. I mean, because I know I've watched his videos and he would talk a lot about understanding the medicine of the land that he lived on, like the palm of his hand. He knew he was an expert forager. He understood the medicine. And I know that, you know, part of that was like living and being part. And so I think he represents a lot more than we think. We initially think about Ray Hicks. But what Jimmy Neal did was invite Ray Hicks to tell at that first festival and ray hicks became almost like the face of the festival he was uh six and a half feet tall beach mountain north carolinian mountain man tell jack tell used to tell jack tells um very charismatic very a beautiful human and that particular moment of 60 to 80 people on a flatbed truck with some hay bales around the courthouse of jonesboro sparked a movement it happened to be the first public event exclusively devoted for the art of storytelling in the world. It helped to professionalize the storytelling industry from something that people did every day, which they still do, but into a professional industry. And then you had the professionalization where people started submitting their taxes, you know, you know, doing it for a living. It was also part of the national folk movement, a folk revival that was happening across the country where storytellers would go to folk festivals. But when they heard that there was a, movement for them a place for them they came and you think about the mountains you know we didn't have before the internet and all these things you you had to hear through word of mouth but they came they came to the mountains came to jonesboro what was 60 people turned into eleven thousand. you know over 40 years around 40 50 years and so during that period of time what happened was jimmy Neal was a visionary and he still is but very much thought about the idea of you create something, then you work to become it. And so he called it the National Storytelling Festival with the idea that a small Appalachian town can create something that's national, of national importance. 
And he started to invite storytellers like Pete Seeger, Alex Haley, Guy Carawan. He started to invite uh, many others. There was um, Catherine Tucker Windham, that's considered a matriarch from Selma, Alabama, of the storytelling movement. Jackie Torrance, who is the most one of the most studied storytellers. She's passed as well. African-American storytelling, also a matriarch, one of the most studied storytellers uh, from her archives uh, and recordings to many others, you know, until modern day when we started to invite, you know, we invite social justice storytellers, peace-building storytellers, activists, moths, story, you know, all different types. The author of Orange is the New Black, Piper Kerman and Larry Smith, to slam poets, to national poetry out loud champions, those that tell Appalachian-focused place but also idaho and the Gullah traditions the african-american traditions multiple traditions and those that tell folk tales to personal narrative those that have become comedians that turn storytellers musicians turn sto storytellers david holt is known as a musician as well and he often he would tell on stage how he used to tell stories in between his music sets but now he performs music in between his stories and you can hear that very much with different storytellers, but they talk about how they became storytellers, how that part of them emerged. They realized this is what I am. They claimed it. And so that movement really began and turned into the National Storytelling Festival, which is the flagship. But what the International Storytelling Center does as a nonprofit that, you know, it's a physical building, but there's also a lot more. While I was there, Particularly, we you know, we built on a lot of work that Jimmy Nils began, but, you know, working with NASA scientists to understand complex ideas around science and discovery and imagination, once again, through the stars and explorations, to working with healthcare professionals, putting storytelling into hospitals and understanding to the healing power to social justice kind of work as well. You know, everything from training the Pentagon on alternative uses to violence, using stories to build relationships and empathy and connections with tribal leaders in different countries, for helping troops and commanders cultivate their personal narratives from rural towns. And when they use those stories to cultivate relationships when they're trying to do peace conflict prevention with others in different parts of the world, you know, to working with the State Department, foreign uh, officers, foreign relation officers, foreign services and how to share their stories that they want to tell as well as projects that brought uh, young people emerging leaders from lebanon and iraq and turkey and egypt the united states fostering intercultural cultural diplomacy relationship building across our nations so storytelling is you know a cultural diplomacy tool it's a peace building tool so isc was very much at the pinnacle of doing a lot of that work year-round residencies particularly through the artist as storyteller you know people that have been cultivating stories to perform that's kind of a capital p performance storytelling that's primarily what isc is well known for but also preservation the collecting and the preserving of those traditions the practice which is the application of storytelling in different fields healthcare justice peace etc i would say you know through those sort of three p's and uh, with the values of justice and equity and diversity and quality was about helping people to broaden their perspectives of the broader story that is part of who we are 
everything from working with young people at risk to communities at risk, facilitating dialogue, using stories for story circles, all sorts of things. So that's what ISE does, I did, and still does. And, you know, my role was to kind of like oversee that work and develop the partnerships and also the funding. And then um, it was in a really good place to for me to step down and say, wow, I feel I kind of done my job. Now let me explore what else I want to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yes. And going back to talking about diversity, I think a lot of people don't realize how this small historical Appalachian town of Jonesboro, Tennessee brings together all these diverse voices and cultures to tell their stories. It's a, I like to think about of a global village that descends in our small town and they get the, they get the hometown southern experience too, which is kind of really nice. You know, it's not a big city where it's not, nothing, I'm from big city, so don't, I'm not anti-big city, but there's something intimate and friendly and caring and, and warm about being in when you can uh, walk from tent to tent and meet your friends, you know? It's also, you know, as a peace builder, I say it was also a peace building initiative because when you have people from all walks of life, from 50 states and beyond, sharing space together and doing, engaging is something that transcends politics. Then you have the opportunity to build fellowship and be present with one another. And that experience, that kind of moments are very rare in our society. That's why I always saw it as a peace building initiative. Take the feeling that you have in this moment and go share that love with the world. That was, that's kind of my uh, vibe. But, you know, at the same time, we are, ISE is just one institution now. There are thousands of institutions around the world now that do this, similar or different. Some storytelling institutions are doing specifically, you know, marginalized voices. Some are doing uh, stories of the South or cultivating new South, global South. You know, so there's all sorts of different types of approaches to it. And, you know, essentially, story, no one organization owns storytelling. It belongs to everybody. It belongs to humanity. You know, I mean, some people try to co-opt it. Dangerous politicians. And I think companies that are trying to frack our region, you know, like and exploit. And I think that storytelling can be used as a dangerous force, but it can also be used... And why it should be used is for a force for good building community. Do you have any advice on how our listeners can begin to write and share their own stories and experiences? Yeah. I mean, you know, take notice when you wake up in the morning, how many times you hear a story, how many times you tell a story. Take notice of the places where that you feel comfortable when you come home from school, from work, and someone asks you, how is your day? What do you you tell them a story. When you put your kids to sleep at night, you tell them a story. Think about the times where you feel really comfortable when you meet your best friend after a long time. and But you just talk about, you know, this thing happened to me or this is what's been happening in my life. Imagine coming home for Thanksgiving, sitting with the person you love and you're sitting at their feet or you're sitting side by side and you're sharing your life. That's storytelling. It's the greatest moment of storytelling the kitchen table is the most beautiful form of storytelling i see the front porch the kitchen table the connection between people 
that's so think about that think about like when you do it if you want other ways to kind of like okay i want to go deeper i always say to people keep a journal if you're serious about writing or cultivating and processing and imagining write your thoughts every day you know write every day keep a audio app on your phone and just write you know write about the sunrise write about the moments write about how your feelings write about the subtle smile that you got from a stranger and how it made you feel write about something that reminds you of something write about a memory you know that comes to mind you know write just write and if you continue to do that every day then the story naturally comes i say storytelling is like permaculture it's like gardening you know permaculture the concept that partly we don't try to impose plants or shrubs into a place that shouldn't necessarily be there but wait to see what naturally should be there the process of storytelling is like write and wait to see what naturally rises to the surface what grows out of you that's wonderful advice <laughs> Where can our listeners contact you and follow you on social media? I'm in hiding. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, people can contact me. Just go to kiransingsarah.net is my website. Kiransingsarah, Facebook, Instagram. You may not want to see my pictures, but anyway, but that's where, that's where I am. Instagram, LinkedIn, all that. Just, I think uh, I have a website and I, you know, on the website is my email if people are interested, there are toolkits and blogs and sometimes I offer sort of tips and ideas. And, you know, I try to think about stories of the world and what's happening and try to reflect upon it. So I often do writing if people are interested. But yeah, you know, otherwise I live in Johnson City, Tennessee. <laughs> That's... I hang out downtown. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. You t you'll take them on a tour of Jonesboro? Maybe I might just do that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I hope you we go coffee hopping through the cafes. Yes, I like that idea. <laughs> and, and, and share biscuits. Yes, yes. Well, I follow you on social media. I love your post. So I love your post. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, Kira, I, I, yeah. Yes, go ahead. No, go no, ahead. I, yeah, no, I, I appreciate being here, and I've you know I've I one of my favorite moments in ten years was when you and your colleagues came and. We sat in our office and in my office and we just shared in, in it, it was the table was like the fire. We just yes. shared our stories about who we are. And you've you've helped me to open, broaden my perspective. And I love the mission statement of the Melungeon Heritage Society about kind of the idea of like we're wor what we're working towards as well. It's not just the past. It's like who we are. You know, I'm we have a I have an inter racial relationship with my wife and my wife is white and our kid my kid is a blonde <laughs> blonde hair blue eyes and i'm brown <laughs> and that's the future and let's celebrate it and i love the idea that we can come from different places and people but we're all one humanity and there's so much more that binds us so i pretty really appreciate what you're doing and your colleagues are doing and thank you for me allowing me to be part of it you know of course and you're exactly right. That's that's who our Melungeon ancestors were, a multi-ethnic, multicultural people. And that's and, and that's who we are today. And that's where we are going in the future. Kieran, I want to thank you so much for being on our podcast and for sharing your story with all of us. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate being here. 
You've been listening to the Melungeon Voices podcast. On behalf of myself, Heather Andalina, and the entire MHA Executive Committee, we'd like to thank all of those who participated in making this episode possible. For more information, you can visit them on the web at melungeon.org. That's M-E-L-U-N-G-E-O-N dot O-R-G. The information, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode do not necessarily represent those of the MHA. Melungeon Voices is presented by the Melungeon Heritage Association. All rights are reserved.